Hello everyone, welcome once again to Reason for Hope. We're glad that you're joining us or have stumbled upon our broadcast here, Reason for Hope. In case it's your first time, it is an hour-long live broadcast where we take your questions on the Bible and spend some time finding the answers to those questions in the Bible itself, in God's Word. So if you have a question on the Bible, if it's an honest question, maybe about a verse or passage of Scripture that you'd like expanded upon or uh, maybe something you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical perspective. What does God say about different uh, world issues and worldviews and all those kind of things? Uh, any question along those lines that you have, uh, as long as you know that the Bible is the source of the answers, and as long as it's an honest question, um, you are more than welcome to send those in. We're on multiple online platforms. I'll be going over those in just a moment, so you can send in your questions through those forms, and I'll be watching and waiting for those coming in. My name's Dave Robson. As I said, I'll be your host today. With us today, Pastor Sean Richards, again, just the two of us. I won't do the song this time. I'll, I'll, I'll try not to be tempted to do that, but how are you doing today? Fighting other temptations, I guess, uh, what's the word, uh, mischievous also in nature. Oh, really? Shenanigans yep. and tomfoolery <laughs> abound, this. but not acted upon yes. yet. We'll see. We'll see if we can behave today. Kind of very low on accountability over here. We can uh, do whatever we want, can't we? Yeah, tempting. running light doesn't have a prankster session. so. No, that's right. Well, thank you for being here. Um, we're looking forward to where the show's going to go. Again, we never know where it's going to go because it's all based on on your questions. We're uh, we're live with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Uh, Mountain Standard Time, which is here in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, we broadcast out of Calvary Christian Fellowship. It's a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. Our senior pastor, Scott Richards, not with us uh, today, but he's usually with us uh, Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Yeah, he'll be back moment. this Monday. He'll be back on Monday. So he went out to California for a to do a memorial out there for a friend of a family. So we were praying for him. I heard that it all went uh, well and swimmingly. Um, and he will be back next week uh, for us. But uh, yeah, Calvary Christian Fellowship, if you're uh, in the Tucson area, if you're looking for somewhere to fellowship, you're more than welcome to come check us out. If you go to our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com, you'll find service times there and all that kind of, kind of good stuff. But uh, send us an email. We'd be happy to answer any questions that you may have. That watch live tab right there, if you follow that link, Anytime we're live, we stream to that page, or the direct link is ccftucson.online.church. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to the next event, and you'll see a schedule of upcoming events when we're going to be live. <coughs> but as we're live right now, you'll see that live video. You can sign in with a username, and that's one of the methods uh, by which you can send in your question. I'll be checking those um, as we go along, and we'll be throwing those questions out here to, to Shawnee. Uh, we're on Facebook as well, live as we speak, facebook.com slash Tucson, or search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. Don't forget to like and share while you're there. We appreciate that. But once again, there's a, a, a chat a chat box that's attached to the video. Send your question in there. I'll be checking that as well as we go along. We have an app for your mobile device. Go to your app store, look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson again. That red background with the white Calvary Chapel Dove logo. Then you can watch us on your phone, on your mobile device. And we also have a channel on Roku and on Apple TV. So if you have that capability, uh, add us in your channel store. You can watch us on your big screen. We're live on YouTube as well. If you look for A Reason for Hope, that is the name of the channel on YouTube, A Reason for Hope. It's a good place to go for archives as well. If you go to that live tab, anytime we've been live, it archives for you there automatically. Um, so if you miss the show or you want to rewatch a question for your own study or anything like that, you can find all that right there on YouTube. 
uh, reason for hope. And of course, we're live as well. And that's another method um, that you can use to send your question in just in the, uh, the comments. Send your question right there. I'll be watching and waiting and also like and subscribe and all that good stuff on YouTube. We'd appreciate that. Pastor Scott, as I mentioned, he's the senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. He's not with us today. He'll be back on Monday, but he's on Twitter. Scott R for H. Scott, letter R, number four, letter H. Follow along with him. He posts kind of some fun things and um, tomfoolery and shenanigans, as Sean mentioned. But also just commentary on world events and things in the news as they relate to um, the end times and uh, biblical prophecy and those kind of things. So much going on, especially in the Middle East. Um, so follow along with Pastor Scott if you're interested in that kind of thing. And why wouldn't you be on Twitter? Scott R for H. That'd be great. A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A on Rumble. If you're on the Rumble platform, we're not live on Rumble, but we post archive uh, videos there as well. So if you're using that uh, platform you can find us on there as well and our email address questionsforhope at gmail.com that's questionsforhope all spelled out with letters at gmail.com if you're joining us on the radio we're glad that you are drive safely if you're on your uh, drive time there and just keep in mind you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded so we're not live with you per se but uh if you keep that email address in mind questionsforhope at gmail.com we'll get to that question on our next show and then consider joining us on one of the other uh, aforementioned platforms where we are live and you can um, send your question in in live nothing more exciting than that sending a question see it getting answered wow these are exciting times we live in but with all that being said <laughs> i know i don't get out much but uh that being said we'd love to, to pause to to pray at this point in the show obviously we're handling god's word and his truth we want to share it as accurately as we can his thoughts and ways are higher than ours and so we need his uh, guiding his spirit so um how about um sean would you like to pray as opposed to you that'd be okay <laughs> yeah Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here we want to invite you to be here as well that your holy spirit would guide this program and allow the questions not only to be answered clearly and succinctly but in a way where the work you're doing in the hearts of the listeners would also be able to properly receive it allow your word to be spoken and properly represented protect us from error and enable us to not only put forward your truth but your heart as well we pray this in jesus name amen, mm, amen. that is true amen yes so well, um, as we mentioned, Pastor Scott, your father was out in California doing a, a memorial out there, um, as we often do as pastors. But um, great question to ask. What do what can we share with someone who has lost, in this case, I guess their mother or really any loved one when they pass away? Are there um, good things we can share to encourage them or um, you know, things in God's word about life and death and even grief? What do we share to minister to people in that kind of instance? Yeah, well, first three things you don't do in this situation, as well intended they may be, people usually say, oh, God is a purpose and a plan, not helpful, to say, oh, well, God's putting you through this in order to build character, again, not helpful. Mm. And, of course, the idea of his ways are above our ways, the classic spiritual no answer. It doesn't point people to Jesus, it doesn't point people to Scripture, and it doesn't actually meet them where they're at. It's essentially a religious dismissal of the fact that someone's hurting and is seeking clarity. So when I have the opportunity to do memorials, there's usually three passages I need to keep in mind at all times, and this is one that's important for people to remember as well. And I don't say passages because, oh, well, I can't think for myself through grief. No, I have a reason to believe that there is someone out there who is not only 
in charge of the afterlife, but has been there in a moment of history and has proven not only his authority over it, but also shared some interesting perspectives about it while adopting human nature. So there's not only understanding to be had from this character in history, of course I'm referring to Jesus, but I want to consider his example as a Christian, because it's in the name, but also because the way that he demonstrated those things clearly worked in the long run because, you know, the resurrection from the dead and all that. When he was invited to the exact same situation, not just a memorial, but the memorial of a family member, someone that he himself called a friend, uh, in the Gospel of John chapter 9, there was the incident of Lazarus dying from a fever and Jesus arriving when they had already entombed him. Now, his two sisters, I think, model very nicely the kinds of people that you're going to run into in that kind of environment. First, people who need answers. That was Martha in this case. She came up to Jesus and said, my Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It wouldn't have been the first time that he had healed the sick, and it certainly wasn't going to be the last. But she was having trouble processing the fact that because there was a God who she believed Jesus to be, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one from God who had not only demonstrated throughout history the ability, and this is where the problem of evil comes to, into play, why would God allow these things if he has the capacity to deal with them, maybe even prevent them? In allowing this to happen, they feel that God is also allowing them this hurt, and they need a proper perspective on that. Jesus meets Martha where she's at and says, your brother will rise again. Mm. Not acknowledging the God's fault or your fault or the disease's fault. He points her to hope. And naturally, as someone processing grief, you're comfortable in your emotional state, so you don't automatically want to be happy and cheerful all the day. She says, yes, I know. <laughs> How many times have we said that? I know that he'll rise again at the last day right. in the resurrection, but I'm hurting now. Yep. So how does Jesus continue the conversation? He doesn't say, well, be patient. Well, you know, it's a virtue. Well, well, understand God is, no, he doesn't do that. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me and dies will live. Do you believe this? Yeah. So the focus comes back to the person of Jesus, centered around the fact that even in the midst of hurt, truth can be acknowledged. That in the midst of all of this, that God has not only become a part of our pain, but entered into the greatest trial and experience of this world anyone will ever deal with, that is death. Mm -hmm. So knowing what it's like to not only see death, but experience death, mm -hmm. we then move on to the second figure of this conversation. Those who don't necessarily need answers, and Martha understood, she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, sent into the world. Then Mary, the second sister, you know, you got the Mary and Martha dynamic, you can read all into the personality types and psychology of that later. Mm -hmm. But Martha was the kind of person who in her grief needed answers. Mary was, as the kids say today, built different. She didn't need answers, she knew the right answers, but she was still in pain. And interestingly enough, she starts the conversation the exact same way that her sister Martha did. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 
Now, Jesus doesn't continue at the same conversation. He deals with people on a person-by-person basis. That's important to remember. But when Mary is grieving, when the people are grieving, he asks Mary a question. Where have you laid him? And she says, Lord, come and see. Then we get to probably the most significant passage in the New Testament as far as Jesus' human experience. I said John 9, this is John 11. John 11, 35, Jesus wept. And their response and reaction to that was, see how he loved him. Mm. Could this man who had risen the dead stop this man from dying? They were processing all of these things with honest questions, and it was a wonderful opportunity for God to be glorified. It's the reason why Jesus performed miracles in the first place. But what's important to understand in all of this is that there's some people who need answers. There's other people who just need shoulders. They just need someone to experience the run of emotions with them. That's why Paul's later letters, in light of the example of Jesus, says, weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And in other passages, well, I've become all things to all men that I might witness. Um, But note that emotional empathy is not only meeting someone where they're at, but not trying to pull them out of it. The one thing that Jesus cures (laughs) in that state is truth. Who is he? in the midst of all of this, but understanding this is still a problem. And not only does Jesus acknowledge that, he grieves with those people, hmm. but interestingly enough as well, what, four verses later, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Mm-hmm. He still grieves. Why? Because he sees what death has done to his once perfect creation. Yeah. We all understand, and what's oftentimes called an echo of Eden, this thing called death ain't right. Yeah. We weren't created for this sort of thing that we call death, this not permanent, of course, but this separation between yeah. each other as creatures designed for relationships. And you, we see you this, think that like if everybody dies, which they do. we would be, which they do, we'd be used to it by now. But well, like you say, it's just something in us says it's just not right. Well, it's the, according to the atheistic worldview, it's the foundation and pinnacle of progress. Right. According to the Hindu worldview, it's a step closer to paradise. It's mm. the finally being free from this burden called existence. Yeah. Yet, no one lives that way. Yeah. So, we need to understand that while people are hurting, it's okay to hurt with them. Our Lord did, and that's the example to start with as yeah. Christians. The second thing to remember is that in securing truth and reminding people of truth, it always needs to come back to what Jesus revealed himself to be, the one with authority over life and death, that knowing that, yes, there will be a resolution, all these things in the immediate, but right now, and this was the same words of comfort I gave to my own mother, grieving her mother, my grandmother, as well. Uh, It it was uh, taken from a message given by Levi Lusco to note the proper citation. But I took her hand, I took my auntie's hand, and I just reminded everyone who was there in attendance, and it was a large gathering, believe me, definitely a testimony to Marie. But I said, okay, just imagine and picture this. Grammy's with Jesus. You're with Jesus. That's enough. Mm. That was the same comfort that was given as well, not just to you know the, the fragile emotional women, but to guys like Ellie Romaine, a Marine drill sergeant and veteran of Guadalcanal when he lost his wife as well. Mm. Uh, long legacy of pastors that have needed this same comfort, needed this same reminder in reality. If we center ourselves on Jesus and what and who he revealed himself to be, that's the only consolation we have because it's the only hope we have. Yeah. Everyone else who's physically died has stayed dead. There's no hope 
for a return in that severed relationship, mm. at least physically. But through Jesus, we not only have a preservation of relationship, but like Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1, hurting, or 1 Thessalonians 4 rather, hurting with hope. Mm. It still hurts, but it has something that can in help you endure through it, not being destroyed by it. So keep those three things in mind, and then understanding as well, a whole slew of emotions are welcome in these situations. Jesus himself demonstrated not just grief with, Mar uh, with uh, Mary, not just uh, solidity, I guess is the word I was looking for, with Martha, but outright anger in the face of these things. In the verses following after Jesus wept and saw him from dying, the passage says that he groaned within himself when he saw the people weeping in the tomb and so forth. Now what's interesting about that is in the original language it's the same term used to describe the snortings of an angry horse. Huh. I don't know if you've been around the uh, the equines, but when they're agitated they're, they're very big so you yes. just kind of go, oh <laughs> boy I'm gonna give that thing some distance. Jesus mm -hmm. unhappy. There's other words I could use to describe it, but we're on the air. He was mad yep. with a capital E-E-D, right? He was <laughs> mad. So we need to understand emotions are appropriate. Negative emotions are appropriate. Truth is vital, but they need to be centered on Jesus. That's what I'd say to someone in that situation because A, I've done it before and it worked, but B, <laughs> the guy I'm trying to follow did it before and it worked then too. John 11, keep that as your focus. I think you'll be okay. Yeah, great well laid out I and mean, something that I'm sure we'll all face uh, one time in our life in one way or another. So I hope that helped to equip you guys. That was a great job, Sean. Thank you for that. For sure, at least once. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if all else fails or doesn't uh, yourself. Um, good stuff. Uh, well, a question from Cal. Uh, why did God put the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? And does the fact that the curse came from eating from this tree means that the pursuit of knowledge is wrong. Well, I'm glad you phrased it properly because it specifically denotes what kind of knowledge resulted in the curse. Mm. Now, people think that God's against knowledge because of either a caricature of Christians being anti-science, which isn't true. The founders of the scientific revolution right. based their discoveries and pursuits on a Christian worldview, and they're still contributing to that field today. Secondly, when we take a time to consider what Genesis 2 actually says, it says the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even if we were to discount supernatural properties that that tree may have had. Obviously, the effects that it imbued on us. People say oh, it was poisonous. It was the only poisonous thing out there. No, what made it so that it had spiritual implications was that because of this specific plant, physically, let's just stick to the bare bones here, would involve disobeying God severing their relationship, their covenant, their legal agreement with God, in that the one thing that they were told not to do in order to preserve their relationship with him was done, and done deliberately, by the way. Mm. You, you say, no, 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 Eve was tricked. Yeah, but who was her figurehead? Adam. Adam knowingly ate of the fruit, and he was the one who received that direct revelation and passed it on to Eve. And Adam and Eve had regular interactions with the Lord according to Genesis 3 in the cool of the day. So the problem wasn't the fruit per se, the, the properties of it we can get into in a moment, but it was the fact that their deliberate disobedience of God's word 
resulted in the severance of that relationship in the same way that the annulment of a marriage is justified when the one thing you agreed not to do, <laughs> cheat on each other, was done. Now, when we saw that separation take place, the violation of their covenant with God take place, that is something that also included with it physical consequences that naturally follow from severing their relationship with God. But note what they had with that relationship. When we're talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, people say, so what was it about the tree that resulted in God having such a problem with them now? Well, it wasn't because God is against the pursuit of knowledge. In fact, the key detail in that passage was not only dying, they would die, but as a result of their separation from God, a violation of their covenant, a trend that would continue on into history. Because remember in Genesis, who was that written by? It wasn't the eyewitness testimonies of Adam. It's not like there's some like inscription saying, you know, sincerely dirt, here's what God did, right? For those of you who don't get the joke, Adam means dirt, earth, right? But that's the point of emphasis. Moses was given Genesis, the history of his family going all the way from the first man to Jacob and, of course, Joseph in their time in Egypt. And this historical account is important to understand, not just in the details that we were given, but why. Because not only were Adam and Eve put in a separated state from God when they violated their covenant with God, did Israel experience physical death as a result of their violations of their covenant with God? Mm. Quite often (laughs) in the years of wandering the wilderness, they were told these things because these were things that would directly condemn them and saying, oh no, we're doing it again. That's the point. But then in the violation of that covenant, and this is an important third point, when they took the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was Satan's appeal? The serpent's, um, I guess, trying to make it appeal to their pride. It was, it had the power to make one wise. Now, wisdom isn't just knowledge. It's the ability to make decisions, right, with the knowledge that you have. What did Adam and Eve have with God? Did they not know anything? Genesis 2 would discount that right off the bat because not only do we see Adam had some... uh, charisma in coming up with a poem describing his wife Eve, or woman as she was called at the time, in something that uh, I think would woo any girl nowadays, right? The ability to express through poetry and artistry of words, that's intelligent. Mm. We see him being able to not only name, but name animals according to their kind. And I know you look at things like fly or grasshopper and say, probably got burnout after a minute, but then you think like, you know, hippopotamus or elephant and, you know, all these creative words. I'm, I'm kidding. It's a Brad Stein joke. But the ability to observe characteristics and name them according to them, that's intelligence. Yep. What were they lacking? It wasn't knowledge. What was God against? It wasn't knowledge. The knowledge of good? Did they not know good? They had God, the definition of good himself. What was introduced as a result of that fruit? Not something they had without God, just like anything in sin, because in sin we're pursuing things created by God, right? But in the wrong way. The only thing they gained from the taking of the tree of good and evil was the knowledge of evil, Hmm. was the knowledge of pursuing something other than what is good. The ability to sever their relationships with God, something adopted into all of our natures Mm -hmm. as a result of that spiritual 
and physical decision. Mm -hmm. So when it comes down to, and you can take this for what it's worth, I am expressing an opinion here, and I'm gonna say that. The supernatural properties of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I think there's some credit to it, but only because of the unique work of God in that Mm -hmm. there were consequences for this fruit. It's not as if, you know, you find a papaya or a pomegranate today and it's like, oh, that's the fruit. It wasn't an apple either, by the way. You can, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. That, that is still true. We're talking about something that, according to the Word of God, had spiritual consequences. It wasn't something physical that re-altered their genome and soul, right? Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about that. That's my opinion. But when it comes to what we can universally agree with across the board, the only thing Adam and Eve gained from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was evil. And that's the point. That's the fall. They knew good because of God. They knew a lot because they were made in the image of God, who's also a smart cookie, right? That's what we need to keep in mind. God's not against the pursuit of knowledge. In fact, every member of the scientific revolution were quoted in their own ways as saying that we are committing acts of worship in observing and recognizing the patterns placed by our intelligent designer, our creator. Mm-hmm. So understand that this, I guess, uh, I, I, I'd hesitate to even call it propaganda, but I don't have another word for it, that Christians are anti-science, that belief and faith are an alternative to knowledge and truth, that science has dismissed the Bible. It's absolute hogwash. It depends on you not only not knowing something, for you to think that you don't know something, but to think that knowledge isn't a virtue promoted in Scripture. The problem is moral ethics, not necessarily just the idea of pursuing wisdom. Yeah, great. Good stuff. Well, Cal, thank you for that that question. hope that helps you out um, with that. get the question. name of the individual who kind of popularized this, too. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get it here in a minute. Okay. Um, yeah, we had, and once again, hey, uh, send in your questions, whatever platform you're joining us on, whether it's Facebook or YouTube, or our website, as I mentioned earlier, um, send in your questions. We still have uh, half of the time left on our show here today. We'd love to uh, handle your questions here on the Bible. Again, any like, passage of scripture or, you know, what does God say about certain even lifestyles or situations, things like that. But uh, um, Yeah, it was uh, John William Draper. This was in the early 1800s, and he wrote the uh, warfare model, and it was basically um, popularizing the idea that science and religion are in fundamental conflicts with one another, mm-hmm. but it was only because he hated the Roman Catholic Church and wanted to demonize them socially. Uh, note that he was writing after the times of people like Charles Darwin, who, by the way, was a pastor originally, a radical Christian, granted, but people like uh, Joseph Presley, Carl Linnaeus, uh, we can talk about Newton after him, uh, Anton uh, Lewinhock, Robert Boyle, Blaise Pascal, Bo somewhere is smiling, and plenty of other people who were contributing leaps and bounds to the fields of silence. We can talk about Galileo himself being a Christian, Francis Bacon, the founder of the scientific method, all Christians, and uh, Copernicus as well, father of modern astronomy. So make sure that we understand the facts when it comes to knowledge. That's not what God's against. The modern perception of Christians being anti-science came from that. uh, I I won't uh, come up with names for him. I'll just continue to call him Draper because that's what his mom did. (laughs) Good stuff. Thank you for sharing that. 
Um, well, moving on, a question from Cheshire. Uh, was Jesus a socialist? Speaking of atheism, um, the reason why that would come up at all is because, and usually I, I know the individual who asked this, uh, it's coming from an atheist, by the way, the um, idea that because Jesus promoted vague concepts like giving to the poor, being generous, um, obeying governing authorities, and that he voluntarily paid taxes, because you paid taxes and socialists pay taxes, therefore Jesus was a socialist. Because Jesus told people to give to the poor, and because some socialist policies coerce people into giving to causes they deem as the poor, therefore Jesus was a socialist. It's very nitpicky in the data, and you have to be careful with this, but you also have to be fair towards the person who's bringing up the claim. Now, socialism, uh, basically a step on the way to communism, both come from Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. Karl Marx, uh, Hebrew by ethnicity, but an atheist by religion, was an interesting fellow in that he believed the famed Greek perfect society, what's called utopia, is all a matter of whether or not finances are properly distributed and put under control. And he had fancy terms like the bourgeoisie, the proletariats, and all these other things. Peter Martin, uh, previously on a broadcast, went through the Communist Manifesto briefly and his philosophy, how he's influenced the world, who he was borrowing from, and who he was building ideas on top of, and of course the hundreds of millions of people who've lost their lives as a consequence of his bad ideas. But that being said, if you run into someone who claims that Jesus is socialist, first, the best thing to do, and I'm having a conversation with him as well, is to ask what you mean by that. Because I think if they hear themselves say out loud the most vague associations possible, and therefore associate everything that involves socialism with Jesus, mm -hmm. you're probably going to be able to just tell them, really, and that'll settle the conversation. But say it continues after that, they want to... I guess, align Jesus with their values and say, you know, he's admired and I admire this view and I think that he has these positions in common. Great. Well, what are the fundamental assumptions behind socialism or what it ultimately leads to, according to the guy who came up with it, communism? It's the idea that your treasure is here on this earth. Mm that the treasure of this earth is what ultimately resolves all of our issues, where we need to be invested, that if the government is given full reign to enact its policies and distribute wealth as it deems fit, that people will naturally be altruistic, they will ultimately work for the common good and be paid or compensated according to their need, not their want. Mm -hmm. There won't be excesses, there won't be poverty, there won't be abuses, because man's perfect, and if given enough power, they will use it properly. Mm. So the point being made is that. Um, two big issues. First of all, the same guy who said that money is the issue <laughs> also said that religion is the opiate of the masses, that mm. the useful idiots he called them, were going to be composed of these various kinds of groups, and that someone who holds a belief in an authority over the state, a god, is going to be an obstacle to this, which is why you see every implementation of communism and socialism 
ultimately stems from a fundamentally atheistic worldview. Hmm. Now, I don't claim to know everything about Jesus, but I think he believed in a God. I think that he believed in a power above the state, that even though he submitted to governing authorities and telling Peter, you can pay your taxes, in a conversation, by the way, where he said that the sons of the kingdom don't have to pay taxes, but because we don't want to offend them, that's another conversation. When he said in one of his most famous public speaking engagements, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, and then there's another smaller iteration of it in another situation called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. But in both situations, he made an interesting observation. He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. What things? The monetary things. He mentions clothes. He mentions your stature, your physical health and well-being. He mentions all the things that we seek after. Those who don't know God, the socialist, seek after, that think that will solve all of their problems in this life. And Jesus fundamentally flipped that worldview on its head, saying, if you want to resolve problems in this life, seek the next life instead of the socialist view, which is resolve problems in this life and the next life, which doesn't exist according to the socialist view, is going to naturally sort itself out. So both teaching opposite things. And if someone has a opposite view, I generally don't think they agree with you. Call me old fashioned, but that would be my answer. Um, you can obviously get into more specifics if they cite a specific passage and then say, yeah, I see this as socialist. They gave you chapter and verse of the Bible. Now they need to show chapter and verse from the Communist Manifesto where that is being implemented, not just from that worldview, but with those credentials, because especially in our day and age, most people who call themselves socialists don't actually believe in socialism. Mm. They believe in a watered-down version that's been handed to them by either their college professors or the internet in order to make it as glowing as possible, in order to put, kind of put a tarp over the hundreds of millions of people, Christians and Jews, by the way, yeah. who are dead as a result of those policies. So make sure that when you're talking to someone, you don't start the conversation, at least start it. It may end this way, but don't start it with like, uh, that sounds like that uh, commie stuff. Get out of here, you red. Right? That, that's not going to help anybody. But if you ask them for specific examples, you respect them enough to give them both ears before your one mouth, then I think they'll be keen to return the detail. And I'd say it's a far more productive conversation, not just for there to be one less socialist in the world. That's good but even better to spend a conversation about socialism instead talking about Jesus. I'd yeah. say that's the best. Yeah, always good to bring it back to that. Great, well, thanks for that question. Hope that helps you out. Thanks for asking it. And uh, let's see, question. this one's uh, hot, hot in off the press, came in through our website from Ron. Uh, did Christ endure God's wrath on the cross? Uh, one more time, what was that? Did Christ, Christ endure God's yes. wrath? on the cross. Yes, he did. Um, in the Gospel of John, when he was on the cross, all the Gospels, by the way, note this, when the sun went dark from the sixth to the ninth hour, uh, by modern reckoning it would have been around to noon to three, 
the significance of darkness is a picture from the Old Testament of when the wrath of God is in fact taking place. Now, I don't want you to take my word for that. I just want to make sure that I get to it chapter and verse first, because Joel's a small book. Um, Joel chapter 2, for those of you who want to follow along. Now, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Yeah, he's, he's an early prophet. Humor me. Um, the context of the book of Joel, by the way, he would be noteworthy as one of the earlier prophets, even before the time of Isaiah, some believe, um, between that time period between Elijah and Isaiah. But what's interesting about it was the context of this was a demonstration of the wrath of God. Uh, as a result of the policies, interestingly enough, of the wicked queen Athaliah, who was the granddaughter of Jezebel, not a good girl either, by the way. Um, it was essentially criminalizing belief in the true and living God. And when the prophet Joel was speaking, it was at a time where people were just kind of keeping the God stuff on the down low. And as a result, the nation was suffering. A plague of locusts was being sent, not just as judgment for the pagan idol worship, which included some very ugly things, but also the neglect of God's people. And the prophet Joel, interestingly enough, describes the day of the Lord. And this isn't just a 24-hour period. It's a time when God's acting, specifically in the negative context. Note how in chapter 2 he describes it. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. Then it goes on to note the um, I guess foreshadowing of what the Babylonians would do when they were ultimately sent by God. We can talk about that if you'd like more detail. But notice the theme. You want the judgment of God? Look for darkness. Look for this unnatural introduction of blackness, of gloominess, into a situation that shouldn't be otherwise. Now, you go to the Gospel accounts. I mentioned the Gospel of John, but why don't we start at the first? Let's go to the Gospel of Matthew. And interestingly enough, with a Hebrew audience in mind, people who would have known Joel from knee-high to a grasshopper, for those of you who know Old Testament, especially the book of Joel, you'd catch the pun. But this is what we are told about the situation. Now, in verse 45 of Luke or Matthew, excuse me, 27, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is Aramaic translated for, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why would Jesus quote the first verse of Psalm 22 when he's on the cross? Hmm. Well, Note, I gave the reference early. This wasn't Jesus having a lapse of faith. It was literally him describing what he was going through. If you read Psalm 22, and we got time, why not? Yeah. <laughs> Psalm 22 is a very interesting song because if you know anything about the life of King David, you'd wonder where he was getting all of this. Uh, he didn't have TV or those, you know, dark internet and uh, exposed to some of those things that are corrupting the youth today. He had been through some stuff, but the kind of details he describes himself going through are oddly specific, mm. which is why we not only know this is prophetic, but also why people during his time even considered it messianic. Read the writings of Second Temple Jews for verification on that. Verse 1 of Psalm 22. 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear, and in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you, they trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. So, pausing right here before we go to verse 6, Jesus on the cross is referencing this psalm. Mm. At the ninth hour. Now, how long had darkness been on the face of the earth at this point? Three hours. Mm. This was right at the end when he was about to say, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This was at the conclusion of all of these things, right? Not at the introduction. When he is voicing this, he's drawing attention to his listeners who would have also known this psalm. Remember, the Pharisees had to have the whole entire Old Testament memorized. You reference a verse, it's like uh, you know making jokes and movie references among friends. You mm-hmm. only have to start the sentence with the right tone, and then everyone else can finish it. Yeah. Rabbis taught that way. Yeah. And with Jesus referencing this, he's describing what? Someone who cried out to God for deliverance mm-hmm. in history and was delivered. Mm-hmm. Him crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? And noting, people in history have cried out to you and weren't ashamed. Verse 7 or six, excuse me. But I am a worm and am no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. They, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and shake the head saying, subtle, he trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Dave, I know, again, you don't have the whole synoptic gospels memorized. Didn't they say this to Jesus when he was on the cross? (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, it sounds familiar. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. But you are the one who took me out of the womb. You made me to trust on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Did Jesus relate to the Father as his God? Yeah. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <laughs> Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. Mm. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws, and you have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments Mm -hmm. among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Again, I'm pausing because you're hopefully catching references here. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the wicked, afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. Mm. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Not subtle. 
No. Literally, Jesus quotes a psalm that is describing his exact circumstances in not one, not two, but five different ways, both biologically, emotionally, socially, and physically. And as this detailed description of what someone biologically and medically goes through in during a Roman crucifixion, do you know when David was alive as far as the end scheme of things is concerned? According to our calendar, it would have been around a thousand years before Christ. Hmm. Do you know when the Assyrians and the Persians later kind of solidified it, but when the concept of crucifixion was invented as a method of torture? 400 years after this. Right. David's not getting this from a reference point. He's getting it from Revelation. Mm. And Jesus quotes it in reference to him enduring the wrath of God on the cross, using Joel's language intentionally, but then saying at the end of those three hours, what? You have heard me. You have redeemed me. You have saved me. And that's when he gives up his spirit. Not subtle. So fulfilled prophecy, not just of Joel, but also of Psalm 22. Yeah, absolutely. Good stuff. A little bit of a side uh, journey, but no, I think it's, a worthwhile it's one. For absolutely. It's very good. Uh, well, Ron, thank you for that uh, question. Thanks for sending that in. Appreciate being part of the show today. A uh, question from Nora. I was told by a, a Jehovah's Witness that the Holy Spirit isn't God, but it's an influence or just another name for the power of God. Is this true? Is the Holy Spirit a person or is it just an expression of God's power or like an influence? If he is, they forgot to tell the Bible. Um, When it comes to the nature of the Holy Spirit, and this is important because Jehovah's Witnesses will, uh, they've literally written an entire version of the Bible with the sole intent of hiding these kinds of statements. But there are ways that you can get around this. When it comes to your Bible, however, uh, let's just deal with the bare bones facts. When it comes to the deity of the Holy Spirit, the personhood of the Holy Spirit, you need to pay careful attention to how he, and I'm using that pronoun intentionally, expressed himself as referred to and acts, not just as someone who's addressed with a proper name. You can address a title or force or a force or an impersonal will with a title as well Uh, look the hurricane's coming it's not saying that you know uh, hillary clinton's the mastermind behind that you know storm that's uh, currently moving through california and nevada right now i can describe it that way with titles and names but if the hurricane has a will (laughs) if it's described as a person by the one who sent it and of course it's credited with the sort of things that only god can do and consciously chooses when to do them, that's not a hurricane. That's an entity (laughs) with hurricane-like traits. Now, we'd obviously, uh, in any conversation, start with what we can agree on. Yes, we do agree that the Holy Spirit does God's stuff, right? But is it him doing it or is it Jehovah doing it and that's just what we describe happening? Well, this is where you need to get into specifics. How is it treated, how is it described, and does it fit the description of an it, or is it more properly understood as a he? This is in your own Bible. If you were dealing with a Jehovah's Witness from the New World Translation, you'd need a different approach, and two 
the full transparency and honesty of those listening right now, I'd need to do a bit of research from the New World Translation in order to catch them in places where they can't wiggle out, because they've been very good for the most part of New Testament references to the Holy Spirit by saying, instead of, he will send you the Holy Spirit, mm. it or um, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and overshadow you and you will conceive and bear a son, they'll say, uh, the, not the, but but Holy Spirit, as if it's a verb, mm. will come upon you, <laughs> right? Yeah. That, that, that's how they would translate it. So starting with our Bibles, let's just stick to the basic Greek. The first and most important thing to remember is that when someone's called God, and it's not a lie, it's coming from someone in the context of a rebuke for false doctrine mm. or ulterior motives in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, it's probably because it's God. In Acts chapter 5 and verses 3 through 4, in that situation, Ananias and Sapphira were trying to copy the example modeled by Barnabas, or yeah, Barnabas, uh, who was giving out of his basically livelihood in order to support the believers who had come at Pentecost but weren't able to travel back home right away because they wanted to learn more about the Messiah they now just <laughs> realized showed up. And as they, of course, couldn't provide for themselves beyond what funds they had set aside for the trip, the Feast of Pentecost that they had originally intended to uh, be a part of, now people were starting to, you know, feel the pinch, so to speak, and Barnabas was supporting them. Ananias and Sapphira also contributed to this support, but they lied, not about giving, they'd figure that out really quick, but how much they were giving. And the desire was to get the kind of reputation and notoriety that Barnabas was also getting, but for the right reasons. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 3, pay careful attention to how the Apostle Peter describes Holy Spirit as it's about to uh, do something very interesting here. Acts 5 and verse 3. One moment. <laughs> it's hard, tough when you're the only one here. Give me a break. <laughs> Verse 3 says, but no, Peter no said, criticism over here at all. Peter you're said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You don't lie to an impersonal force. Right. Unless there's something going wrong with you psychologically. I yeah. can lie to my laptop, but it doesn't care. Yeah. And keep back of yourself part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to, notice the same sentence structure here, you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to, not men, but God. Acts chapter 5, verse 5. So that would be the first problem with the claim that the Holy Spirit's an impersonal force. The idea that he's not only addressed as God, but can be lied to. That implies a will who knows what's going on, or at least is aware of yeah. what's going on, and yet can have a misrepresentation leveled at him in a way that it impacts him. Mm -hmm. Long definition and term for lying. You don't lie to an impersonal force. The second thing is that the Holy Spirit in some of the divine attributes that he's given and saying, oh, well, when God enacts Holy Spirit, it gives life. But that's not the way that Scripture phrases it, unless you're really twisting the text. Because in Job chapter 33 and verse 14, Job credits the Spirit of God for creating him. Not Holy Spirit made me, the Holy Spirit gave me life. 
and the breath of the Almighty has made me. Mm. So note that. Credit for not only creation, but conscious creation. And it's the same kind of language that's used in Genesis chapter 1, where it says the Spirit of God was hovering, some translations put it, mm. but literally brooding over the waters. Mm. And, and that term brooding, mm. for those of you who have chicken hens, is that idea of a preserving work, like mm. a mother hen sitting physically over its offspring. The Holy Spirit was literally maintaining creation in its introductory stages. So note that description of a conscious will and effort, but we're not done. The third and most important one that I think puts uh, this idea to rest that the Holy Spirit not only isn't a person, but is impersonal, is the fact that when we're told where spiritual gifts come from, you know, Jesus sending the Spirit of truth who will lead you into all truth, all these sort of things, you don't even have to touch the Gospel of John. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it notes the Spirit who works, notice not what, who works Mm. all these things, distributes to each, referring to spiritual gifts, individually as he wills. Now, if you're going to say, well, when it says he, that's God, but when it says wills, well, obviously that's not the Holy Spirit, Mm. when was that figure introduced? That's an assumption made before the text, not because of it. So when you run into, and I'm going to use technical terms here, modern-day Arians, people who deny the deity of Christ, people who fundamentally and purposefully alter Scripture in order to support preconceived notions handed to them by Charles Taze Russell and their organization, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, in order to, and I say this unapologetically, support their pyramid scheme, there's no other way to put it, who have the Miracle Week controversy to still answer for, who predicted the end times and the date of Armageddon, not once, not twice, but over 20 times, Mm. and failed, they are not a dependable source of spiritual truth and Bible interpretation. Not one name has been used in support of the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society's translation, the New World Translation, in order to support their handlings of these passages, in order Mm. to alter them to support this view that the Holy Spirit is an impartial force. Now, note, they will be very good at making pretzels out of pre-memorized responses, which is why I don't encourage you just to memorize these statements and then uh, hurl them back at them as if that will settle it. They train more than most people contribute to their jobs in preparing to alter Scripture, to twist Scripture, to manipulate the people of God. Understand that you're going to have to deal with them, a lot of pre-memorized sermons, a lot of things that are going to sound really good, but at the end of the day, they are taking it from a poisoned well. They are lying to you because they've been lied to. Mm -hmm. And if they get difficult and stress you out, speaking from experience, you're going to have to deal with that, but it's ultimately going to be worthwhile if you can put one stone in their shoe, as Greg Kokel says. Mm -hmm. One source of irritation for them to think, you know, my organization's told me this on repeat for the last however many years I've been a part of the organization, and they threaten me daily with, if I even disassociate them in my mind, and Armageddon happens, which by the way is not how the Bible describes Armageddon, they describe that as the event when God, Jehovah, excuse me, annihilates everything and then recreates it according to his perfect memory, so they'll cease to exist, but at least a copy of them will still be around. That's their great hope. They're going to have to say, this is based on fear, 
and I'm afraid of even entertaining these thoughts. But every time I bring up these things to this Christian, they're going to their Bibles. I have things that they've handed to me from my Bible, but why is it this person seems to know a piece that I can't? Yeah. That's what's ultimately going to stick with them. So there are answers to these things, and note, I do grant that they're going to need a lot of research to be able to handle effectively, but in this situation, those are the passages that will settle us in knowing that's why they have to alter the Bible, because it's very clear about the nature of the Holy Spirit, mm. being not only deity, but an active person. In their dismissal of it, they'll have a lot of memorized speeches in order to dismiss it, but you need to be prepared and say, well, it's interesting you say that. Let me get back to you and do some research, because they're going to go into the Greek and not be able to give you the Greek alphabet, but I digress. It's all going to come down to that. Don't let them go into their preconceived and pre-memorized sermons and speeches. Get them to think, because that's not allowed. The organization does that for them. They are fearful of the knowledge, right? But make sure that you do so with respect because they have invested a lot of time and effort. And just like if you had done something for a lot of time and for a lot of very emotionally vested reasons, you're not going to let go of it easily either. Right. So make sure that you plan for return visits, but those are the passages I'd note as proof texts for the deity of the Holy Spirit and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. There are others, but in your engagements, make sure that when they go on their speeches, you note that mentally and say, not the best direction to go. Hmm. They've already blanked this out of the, my, their mind, and my voice is not going to reach them in that regard. Yeah. Go at it from another angle, and the best place to go are the Psalms. Always make the conversation back to the deity of Christ, because that's the one thing keeping them from him, and mm. that's I think, won't uh, make you go too far wrong. Yeah, very good. Well, Sean, thank you. Great job today. All by yourself. Again. Did. Yes, you did wonderful. Well, we'll be back tomorrow, same time, same places, for more of your questions. Uh, questionsforhope at gmail.com if you'd like to send your question in via email, and we'll get to that on our show tomorrow. Have a wonderful evening. We'll We'll see you then. God bless you. Thank you for being part of A Reason for Hope today. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope.